In a moment, we're going to be turning to God's Word, but we don't want to do that mechanically or thoughtlessly. And so we're going to sing a song that reminds us that actually when we open God's Word, we are asking God to speak to us. So before we open our Bibles, let's sing together and ask God to do that. Speak, O Lord. If you'll stand with me, please. Last week we said that as God's people who are waiting for God's kingdom, we need patience. And last week we saw David showing remarkable patience. You may remember he was hiding in a cave with his men, hiding from Saul when Saul walked into the cave alone. As far as David's men were concerned, this was a golden opportunity to kill Saul and seize the kingdom. Wasn't that what God had promised anyway? But David resisted the temptation. He decided he would trust God to vindicate him and judge Saul. David would wait for God to give him the kingdom in God's time and in God's way. We looked at David and we thought about our own need for patience. And afterwards, some of you made the comment that patience is hard for us. It doesn't come easy. And that is true. It's hard, first of all, because we are continually faced with situations that need new, fresh patience. Yesterday's patience isn't going to help us today. And that points to a second reason patience is hard for us. We are changeable people. We may have reacted well to difficulty yesterday, but today it might be a whole different story. Today, maybe facing exactly the same situation, we can react very differently. And patience is not the only thing that we struggle with in this way. Patience is just part of what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. And it can be equally challenging for you and me To show love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How many times have you found yourself producing some of this fruit one day, and it seems none at all the next day? Well, David had the same struggles. We're going to see that in our passage this morning. After his amazing display of patience in the cave... Last week, today we're going to see David displaying no patience at all. But we'll also see how God is gracious to David and how he's gracious to us. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 25. And in this passage, God displays his grace in the form of a roadblock. If you're using One of the church Bibles, it's page 297. In the large print, page 456, 1 Samuel 25. We're going to look at the whole chapter, but I'm going to begin by just reading the first 11 verses. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. 
and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not ill-treat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my man, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? The chapter begins by telling us about Samuel's death. For many decades, Samuel has been like a solid rock in Israel. It was Samuel who anointed David as God's chosen king. And now, with Saul still holding on to the throne, and David nowhere near getting the throne, Samuel dies. It must have hit David hard. Samuel was the one who had delivered God's promises to him. And now Samuel's gone. I think this piece of news in verse 1 is the background to the way we're going to see David behaving later in this chapter. David, I think, is rocked by the loss of Samuel. His confidence for the future is rocked. And that comes out in his reactions later. Verse 1 mentions that Samuel's funeral was a time of national mourning. But it's highly unlikely David was able to be there. Instead, we're told he retreats further into the wilderness, into the desert of Paran. David seems to feel that if things were bad before, they're only going to get worse now that Samuel's gone. Maybe the fulfillment of God's promises seems that bit more distant to David. In any case, after that brief mention of David, the text then shifts and introduces us to a man in Maon. And the defining thing about this man is that he is very wealthy. Even before we get his name, we're told that he's wealthy. And then we're given some other details about him. He's a farmer. His wealth seems to be in his livestock. And his name, we're finally told, is Nabal, which means fool. That's an unfortunate name. 
but it turns out to be very appropriate in his case. But this fool has an intelligent and beautiful wife, Abigail. And we're told Nabal is a Calebite. That's a significant little piece of information because it means Nabal is a relative of David. There are family ties between these two men. We've already been told Nabal has great livestock. And verse 4 tells us it's shearing time. That meant work, of course, but it also meant it was party time. Shearing in Israel was a time for festival and feasting. And as you hear that, think about David's situation. At this point, he's responsible for 600 men plus their families. Chapter 22 told us they gathered round him in the wilderness and he became their commander. It can't have been easy to feed all these people in the wilderness. And when David hears that Nabal is shearing nearby, like a good commander, David decides he wants to treat his men and their families. He doesn't ask Nabal to give him regular handouts. What he asks for is some food to have a one-off feast. And you'll notice David goes about this in the most careful way. He goes out of his way not to appear threatening to Nabal. Look again at the message he sends in verse 6. Long life to you, good health to you and your household, good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not ill treat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my man, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. We might read this and think, is David running a protection racket here? Is he asking for money just to leave people alone? I don't think so. We know from chapter 23 that the Philistines carry out raids on isolated areas of Israel. The raid that was mentioned in chapter 23 was not far from Carmel, where Nabal's sheep have been kept. So David has done Nabal a significant favor. One of Nabal's servants will testify to that later on. Without the protection of David's men, Nabal might not have any sheep left to shear. And David is asking simply for a token reward for his men. The man he's asking, remember, is a man who has plenty to share. Later, the text will tell us that when Nabal feasted, he feasted like a king. But look again at his reaction to David's message in verse 10. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? And the way he speaks here, Nabal shows that he knows fine well who David is. He knows all about David's family. But he holds David in contempt. Nabal has plenty to share 
but he's not going to share. In Hebrew, in verse 11, he uses the word my four times. My bread, my water, my meat, my shearers. There's no doubt about Nabal's offense. And it's made worse by the fact that the man Nabal is scorning is God's anointed king. In a lot of ways, Nabal is like Saul. David has treated Nabal well. And Nabal has responded by treating David badly, just like Saul. But whereas with Saul, David was willing to leave justice in God's hands, here he reacts very differently. Verse 12, David's men turned round and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you, strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. The David who last week was willing to let God vindicate him and avenge him, now all David can think of is the sword. He's going to do his own vindicating and avenging. Today, forget trusting God to bring justice. Today, David's going to handle it his way. Can you see anything of yourself in David here? Of course, you might not have a sword. But can you see yourself in David's reaction here? His inconsistency. Not long ago, he refused to lay a hand on his greatest enemy. But here, he's ready without a second thought to murder Nabal over a few lamb chops. Do you ever see that inconsistency in yourself? Some days we can face a situation, can't we, with a clear head. We see it from a biblical perspective. And we get it right. Whether that means showing patience or gentleness or self-control. We turn away from anger and lust and bitterness. We trust God and we do what's right. But other days, maybe the next day, maybe facing the same situation, the same provocation or the same temptation, and we find ourselves plotting to get revenge or scheming to fulfill our lust. Yesterday's godly perspective is replaced by the old, broken, sinful perspective. If that rings any kind of bell for us, if we can recognize something of ourselves in that, then we need to pay careful attention to what happens next in this passage. What happens next is that David's anger is confronted with Abigail's wisdom. Look at verse 14. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife. David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not ill-treat us, 
And the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do. Because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seas of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and two hundred cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, Go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending towards her, and she met them. Abigail's wisdom includes the wisdom to know when things are urgent. She's decisive here. The first thing she does is send a gift on ahead. It isn't going to go far among David and his men. It's a token. But it's enough for the celebration meal that David wanted. But even so, even though the gift has arrived before Abigail, David is still raging when she gets to him. Look at verse 21. David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness, so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. The language David uses here is actually quite crude. It's toned down a bit in our translations. But the point is, this is not David the sweet psalmist. This is David in a dangerous mood. He's spitting fury. He's ready to do murder. If Nabal has behaved like Saul, here David is getting ready to behave like Saul. Remember back at Nob, Saul slaughtered a group of his fellow Israelites. And that's exactly what David is planning to do. But God sends a roadblock into David's path. It's a roadblock in the form of this intelligent and beautiful woman. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please, pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant... I did not see the man my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles 
And no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. Abigail does three things here. She gets in David's way, she pleads with David, and she brings God's word to David. First of all, she gets in David's way. Verse 20 told us that she meets David here in a mountain ravine. So this is a narrow passageway. And Abigail just blocks David's way. If he's going to keep going, he'll have to trample over her. And then she pleads with David. She says, my husband is not worth your time. His insult isn't worth your notice. And then look what she says in verse 26. The Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. What she's saying is, I am the Lord's means of keeping you from bloodshed and revenge. So don't push past me, David. Think about how I come to be here. The Lord has sent me here as a gracious roadblock. I'm here to save you from yourself, David. From your anger and your foolishness. And then Abigail brings God's word to David. She turns him away from his own plan and back to the greater plan that God has for him. And verse 28, the Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. Then in verse 29, she says the Lord will protect you. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. And he'll take care of your enemies, David. The lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. And, David, when the Lord has fulfilled every good thing he promised you, you won't have on your conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged yourself. Abigail is speaking like a prophet here, just as much as Samuel or Gad or Nathan. Those are the other prophets who play a significant role in David's life. Just as much as them, Abigail is confronting David with God's word. His promises. His commands against sin. The fact that doing evil brings a burden on our conscience. It brings distance between us and God. She says to David, stop. Remember God's word. Let his word direct your course. Let his promises for the future 
determine your actions in the present, David. Let his warnings steer you away from sin. Our God is the God of gracious roadblocks. He knows how fickle and changeable we are. He knows we can be trusting him one day and plotting to ignore him and defy him the very next day. He knows that, and in his grace, he loves us enough to put roadblocks in our way. Sometimes that will take the form of something that literally gets in our way. As we march forwards with some sin on our mind, something stops us. It messes up our plan. Sometimes circumstances stop us doing what we plan to do. And one writer says about those kind of circumstances, what mercy sends frustration to our purposes? What kindness builds hindrances into our path? Then sometimes God's roadblock will take the form of someone else who talks sense to us. And sometimes God's word itself will be the roadblock. God will confront us again with his promises of a future, an inheritance, the joy of seeing his face someday. He'll remind us of his commands. Follow me. Take up your cross. Don't get tangled up in sin. Don't entertain evil in your heart. And through his word, God will remind us where sin leads to. It leads to God's wrath. God's word is not just a book to make us feel nice. Sometimes it's a flaming sword to warn us away from sin and towards obedience. The Apostle John says in his first letter, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. In other words, consider this letter to be a roadblock in your path, sent by God to bring you to your senses. But here's the thing about God's roadblocks. He is gracious in sending them to us, but we had better look out for them. We had better heed them. When he plants one in our path, we had better stop. If you're feeling anger and frustration this morning because something is messing up a plan of yours, it's worth asking yourself, is God being gracious to me here? Is he blocking this plan Because actually, it's foolish, or selfish, or greedy. Could it be that he's blocking a plan that will lead me away from him and into sin? Of course, when we make our plans, we never think they're foolish, or selfish, or greedy. But sometimes, not all the time, But sometimes, on closer analysis, 
we realize that, yes, our sin has come from a sinful heart. Our plan has come from a sinful heart. And it will lead us to sinful actions. So when something hinders a plan of yours, before you try and trample on over that hindrance and push past it, take a second look at what's driving your plan. And if the roadblock takes the form of a person, if someone is trying to get through to you about the course you're on, don't just brush them out of the way. Hear them out. They may be God's way of getting through to you. And let's make sure we allow God's word to speak to us. Let's make sure there is space in our lives for God's word. Let's make sure there are plenty of opportunities for him to direct us through his word. Let's come here on Sundays ready, if need be, to be challenged. Not just encouraged. To be stopped in our tracks, if need be. And redirected by God's word. And let's find the time to listen to his word at other times in the week. It's surprising, and I'm sure some of you have noticed this, how often God's word will speak to our present circumstances. It's surprising how often his word will either confirm the path that we're on or nudge us away from the path we're on. Let's be men and women who are exposing ourselves to God's word and who are sensitive to God's direction. Let's develop eyes and ears and hearts that are ready to heed God's roadblocks in our lives. Let's never be so proud that once we've set a course, we refuse to change it. I once worked with someone who had a reputation as a hard man. And he was very proud of his reputation. He told me one day that the night before, he'd had an argument with his wife. And he said, I picked up the tablecloth by the corners, including all the plates and dishes that were on the table, I picked the whole thing up in a bundle and I marched out the back door with it to throw it in the ditch at the bottom of the garden. He said, about halfway down the garden, I realized I was overreacting a bit, being stupid. But I'd come that far and there was no way I was backing down in front of my wife. So I went ahead and flung the whole thing over the hedge. That man was being an idiot. And he knew he was being an idiot. But he didn't have the courage to back down. He wasn't man enough to set down the tablecloth and the crockery and go back to ask his wife's forgiveness. Never be too proud to say, Lord, you're right. Thank you for stopping me in my tracks. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, God is faithful. When you are tempted, he will also provide a way out. We have to be ready to recognize God's way out and take it. 
Well, thankfully, David is teachable. He allows Abigail to diffuse his anger. And he has the guts to back down from his plan. The last section of our passage gives us the outcome of all of this. It shows us a responsive servant of God. And it also shows us the God who avenges and blesses. Verse 32. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, of, the, Lord the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, Not one meal belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought to him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober... His wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord, who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong, and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and I'm ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and, attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. David had also married Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both were his wives. But Saul had given his daughter Michael, David's wife, to Paltiel, son of Laish, who was from Galim. Judgment on Nabal came in God's way, and it came in God's time. And David praises God both for bringing justice and for blocking David's own plans for revenge. The things David says here about God upholding his cause, these are things that he has said before. They're things that he already knows. But it took God's roadblock to make David stop and remember what he knows. And as the icing on the cake... David ends up with an intelligent and beautiful wife to go with his other wife. Now, ultimately, God will lead his people away from polygamy, multiple wives. But in the culture of the time, it was normal. And you'll notice the writer of 1 Samuel just reports it. He doesn't recommend it. But the most significant outcome here is that by blocking David's plan, 
The most significant outcome is that by blocking David's plan to wipe out Nabal's people, what God has done is increased David's reputation and influence in this region of Israel. Instead of being the man who wiped out Nabal and his people, David is known now as the man who showed them mercy. And when David finally does come to the throne, it will be these people, the men of Judah, who are the first to give David their allegiance. The outcome here shows us that when God blocks our plans, he knows what he's doing. He's keeping us on course to receive the better things that he has for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those times when you step into our lives to save us from ourselves. Thank you for the times when you work to interrupt us in our foolishness. Thank you for loving us enough to stop us rushing into disaster. Maybe as we think about that right now, we can thank you for specific people and specific circumstances you have used already in our lives as roadblocks in our way. As we think about ourselves today, as we look to the future, we ask you to give us hearts that are sensitive and teachable. Give us hearts that are ready to stop and benefit from your grace. If any of us this morning are considering stepping into some sin, if we're toying with it even in our minds and our hearts, help us to see that your word has come to us this morning to stop us. We are usually very quick to praise you when you bless us in some obvious way or when you deliver us from some difficulty. But we ask you to make us equally thankful for the times when you hinder us and when you frustrate our foolish plans. We ask you to continue your mercy to us in this way. Amen. I'm going to sing two songs now.